Peace to you. Welcome to the Naked Truth and thank you for joining me. We're going to pick up where we left off in the book of Isaiah. We made it to chapter 26. If you want to read along with me, let's begin with verse 1. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. God will appoint salvation for walls and bulwarks. So Isaiah is the prophet. It's his book and he's talking about a change uh, that uh, some a day is coming for the land of Judah because apparently this vision um, it, it applies to that kingdom, not both Judah and Israel, but specifically Judah, and that they're going to have um, protection, a strong walls and bulwarks. They're going to be fortified and protected. Verse two: Open the gates that the righteous nation which keeps the truth may enter in. So it seems that. In that protection, there's going to be safety that they'll be able to welcome visitors and strangers and foreigners to who seek righteousness, uh, rather than just be guarded and the gates and walls being up like people are doing, continue to say they want to do on the southern border of the United States, even though the previous president didn't do it at all, and Mexico didn't pay for it at all. And yet, it's just ridiculous. Verse 3, you will keep him in perfect peace. Whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. So Isaiah is saying there that trusting in God, having faith in God is where we will find peace. And personally, I think there's a lot of truth to that statement. Lots of different things come along and shake you in the world. And for me, I think the first place to go is prayer. I know it sounds crazy to non-believers, but that's the first place to go for me. That's in my path, my Christian path. That's where I go. Not to say that I always get what it is I seek when I do that prayer, but that's just my, I think, my natural go-to. Um, and so that Isaiah is saying that we should keep our mind, keep our focus on God, trust in God. Verse 4, trust in the Lord forever, for in the Lord is everlasting strength. So here's where you see um, one of the few times that um, a name for the Lord is being actually written out here. It's not just the four letters and it's not um, just capital L-O-R-D, but it's actually a name and it's a name Y-A-H. And that's, uh, well, let's see, let's use the tools because it's saying Yah as the name of God. But we've read before where um, Haya is um, what um, the name of uh, the response that according to the narrative, God gives to Moses when he asked, when he, when God when Moses asked what's God's name, when Moses is first given the commission to go tell the Israelites that they're going to be set free from their enslavement, Moses asked God, "Who should I tell them who sent me? Who should, what's your name, basically?" And God says, "Tell them I am sent you," and I am, at least in the Hebrew, is Hayah. And of course, as always, please forgive me if I mispronounce any of these. But look at what it's saying here. That's not a H-A-Y-A-H. But instead, because that's how it looks in English, H-A-Y-A-H-A-H. At least if I remember right, that's how it was spelled. And yet you see here, it's Y-A-H. I think part of that is because in the Hebrew language, if I remember right, when you write stuff, you write from right to left instead of left to right so if you're um it, if you read y-a-h backwards then it is h-a-y hi-ya 
but it's still missing a in front of it. But then when in English, they wrote it Y-A-H. So now people are pronouncing it Yah instead of Haya. Or if that's even what God's name is, if the ancient Hebrew is what Moses even spoke. Since again, he was raised in Egypt. He did have some of his Israelite family there with him, his sister, his mama. But um, that doesn't necessarily mean they taught him Hebrew. Because just like in modern times, just because you can speak another language doesn't mean you're family wants you to speak it. I know lots of people with English as their second language, Spanish speakers mostly, and their family here, I don't know how else to say it other than to say they want to be white so bad, the light-skinned ones, that they tell their kids not to even speak Spanish, don't speak Spanish around the house, and they will try their best to only speak English around their kids. And whether it's because they want to be white so bad or because they just want to be accepted so bad or they want to assimilate so badly with the dominant demographic in the society whatever the case may be it happens so just because Moses had people who spoke uh, Hebrew around him doesn't mean necessarily that he was taught that learned that or spoke that even if he knew it so when they say when he asked God what's God's name we don't necessarily know that God replied in Hebrew we just have it in Hebrew in the Bible. So we don't actually know what God's name is, even though people will try to swear up and down. They know intentionally, from what I understand, it was only written as those four letters so that you would not know what it's what God's name is. And so that it would not be written down and so that it would not be spoken out loud and vocalized. So um, I'd say all that to say, keep that in mind when you see Yah as the name of the Lord. Um, but beyond that, what Isaiah is saying, though, is have faith in God, trust in God, and that there's everlasting strength in God, since that's the everlasting one, I would assume. In some versions of the Bible, it actually says, uh, for in the Lord is rock of ages. So, um, I'm sure you've heard that in songs before, too. Verse 5, for he brings down, for, for he downs those who dwell on high, the lofty city, he lays it low. He lays it low to the ground. He down to the dust. So um, Isaiah is saying God has power to humble, not just people, but entire nations, cities, powers. God has that power to level the field. But then that goes back to what I said earlier about being the strength of the poor. And why not level the playing field? Why not go ahead and get a poor break for a change instead of constantly letting the wealthy have tax breaks and easy life all the way along. How about something like the French Revolution, where if people won't separate from their money for the betterment and good of the society, maybe those people should, those people got separated from their heads. Their heads got separated from their bodies. They were so in love with their greed and their money, at least in my understanding of the history of it. Um, but that's what it led to from the poor, getting tired of being ripped off to feed the rich. So it seems America's doing all that and even more now. Um, but just my opinion. Verse 6, the foot shall tread it down, the feet of the poor and the steps of the needy. Um, Isaiah's saying there with that turn of events that the oppressing city will be conquered, its power will be crushed, and the poor and needy that are in it will be the ones who walk tall in it for a change. 
verse 7. The way of the just is uprightness, almost upright. You weigh the path of the just. So um, Isaiah is saying if you're being, if you're saying you're righteous, then your path is walking uprightly. And then the one who's most upright being God, he's saying God's, that's who weighs the just. That's who actually sees what paths we say we're doing and see if we're actually walking the walk or just talking the talk. Verse 8. Yes, in the way of your judgments, O Lord, we've waited for you. The desire of our soul is for your name and for the remembrance of you. So Isaiah's saying that what he hopes for, what he believes in, what he prays about, what he focuses on is the glory of God and that God is in the thoughts of the people who hear his message. It seems that seems to me that's what Isaiah is saying. The purpose of his ministry of and the purpose of what he's saying is. Verse 9. With my soul I've desired you in the night. Yes, by my spirit within me I will seek you early. For when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world will learn righteousness. So Isaiah is saying what I think good advice for all us Christians and everyone generally speaking seek God, seek God early when you first get up, seek God throughout the day seek God when you're going to bed seek God as often as you can you never know when that time will come, your moment, I mean just because you should, but also because you never know, that moment may come where it's your last breath and so at least close to your last breath, hopefully you're seeking God with that energy, with that breath God gave you, uh, and seeking righteousness, learning righteousness. Verse 10, let grace be shown to the wicked, yet he will not learn righteousness. In the land of uprightness, he will deal unjustly and will not behold the majesty of the Lord. So about beholding the majesty of the Lord, Jesus made lets us know from Luke 16, not a parable, that uh, but an actual uh anecdotal narrative of two people passed away that neither one of them turned up to be in the presence of the Lord at least in the in the example that Jesus gave in Luke 16 so it seems beholding the majesty of the Lord is a very 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 rare and special treasure that everyone does not get to do just because you die or when you die everyone doesn't get that moment with God it, at least according to the way what Jesus tells us Regardless of what other parts of the Bible say, that's not what Jesus tells us. Um, let's see, verse 11. Lord, when your hand is lifted up, they will not see, but they will see and be ashamed for their envy of people. Yes, the fire of your enemies shall devour them. So um, it seems Isaiah is saying that people won't recognize when God's moving and doing the things God does, pulling the strings, basically, directing the stage um, of events. But people will notice when they happen. They aren't going to notice that it's God doing it when it's happened, but they are going to notice it once it's done. Sort of like um, um, bad weather, inclement weather. You might not know a tornado's on the way, but once it hits, you know it was there. Verse 12. Lord, you will establish peace for us, for you have also done all our works in us. So Isaiah is trusting that peace will be established um, by God and that it's God doing the works 
so that if it's God doing the works and God wants peace, then how about God work some peace out for him? Now, I mean, establishing peace, I'm not sure who the us is, Isaiah is referring to there, but that part of the world hasn't seen peace. I don't know when it's ever seen peace. And now that I think about that, for instance, some preachers will use the names in the Bible and say that they have special meaning to the to the uh, narrative, and then they'll skip over some names or skip over the meaning of some names when they aren't, when they don't fit the narrative they're trying to indoctrinate you with. A good example of that, of, of showing that the names are just names, even if they get translated to something else uh, meaningful in English, that doesn't mean necessarily that it meant anything in reality to um, oh, its role on the stage of things. And one of the examples that comes to mind is Jerusalem. It's loose in a translation of Jerusalem is city of peace. When has it been a city of peace? When has it ever been a city of peace, even since the biblical days? So just because it's called a city of peace doesn't mean, oh, that's where you go if you want peace. No, not at all. It's just what the name is. The same way you may name your child Gloria. That doesn't mean she's actually glorious. Just means that's the name you gave. Anyway, verse 13. Oh Lord our God, masters besides you have had dominion over us, but by you only we make mention of your name. So Isaiah is recognizing that other conquering forces have had um, dominion over uh, the people. Well, again, whether it's the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, whoever else, um, they've had those powers. But he's saying, even though, even though all that happens, the people still only make mention of God. Now, we know that's not true either. That may be uh, true of Isaiah, that he's been faithful to God. Maybe that's why he gets the prophecies and the messages directly. But we know the people have not been faithful at all. They've been faithful to all sorts of different things, from uh, witchcraft to all sorts of other demons, devils, whatever you want to call them, um, and other things too. Even other countries' religions. So they haven't been faithful at all. Verse 14. They are dead. They will not live. They are deceased. They will not rise. Therefore you punished and destroyed them and made all their memory to perish. So um, if he's talking, if Isaiah is talking about, um, I think that's a, that's a tricky one. Verse 14. So if he's talking, continuing what he's talking about in verse 13, about um, other gods that people may make mention of, um, which it seems to me that must be who he's talking about. He can't be talking about the people. Then he's saying those gods are dead. But if he's talking about the people are dead and then they will not rise, well, then that flies in the face of what other religions um, in the Bible, even beyond outside of Christianity, say about um, uh, people rising. Um, it says they will not rise, and yet uh, some parts of the Bible say otherwise. And to be absent from the flesh is to be present with the Lord. Well, that's rising. That's a resurrection. That's you've died and you're you're back alive again, whether you're alive and burning in hell or alive and someplace pleasant. Either way, that's still uh, existing. That's still alive. And I think that goes along with what Jesus says: for all live to Him, all live to God. So whether you're burning or uh, relaxing, you're still alive. 
in the uh, your soul still lives hereafter um at least that's my understanding so this verse 14 to me doesn't quite make sense um that they will not rise but putting that part aside um it seems that he's saying to um generally i mean otherwise would be that the memory of those idols those different entities gods lowercase that people would um worship the memory is gone people aren't worshiping anymore and i guess in that sense things like baal yeah people may remember it as a reference in the bible but as far as i know there aren't really people going around with the church of baal you know in a in a in a massive sense but i'm sure somewhere you can find it but it's not like it was here in the biblical times Verse 15, at least I don't think it is. You've increased the nation, O Lord. You've increased the nation. You are glorified. You've expanded all the borders of the land. So Isaiah here, it seems, is saying that God is working in their favor now and increasing their territory and um, the land that they're possessing or um, colonizing. I guess it's way beyond the colonization at this point, though. Verse 16 lord in trouble they visited you they poured out a prayer when you when your chastening was upon them so isaiah is saying what most people do um what a lot of people do i won't say most what a lot of people do they don't have time for god they don't seek god they aren't interested in god until something happens and it's oh god oh my god it's prayer instantly even atheists instantly it's oh my god even if they don't believe in god even if they don't even mean it that's what comes to their lips because that's what's in their heart. Somewhere in their heart, they know that's something pretty terrible. You better cry out on to somewhere on high, even if they don't even mean it, even if they don't even believe it. It still comes to their lips because somewhere in their heart, that seed, I think, is still planted to say, oh, there's a God. And whether you feed it and follow it and bear fruit from it or not is up to you. And other elements, as Jesus lets us know, um, as far as the seed planting and everything, some seed falls to the wayside, some seed gets snatched up, but some bear fruit. So um, the outcome varies, but I think that seed still is there. That's why, again, some people say, oh, my God, even if they don't believe in God. Verse 17, as a woman with child is in pain and cries out in her pains, when she draws near the time of her delivery, so have we been in your sight, O oh Lord. <laughs> I remember this part. So Isaiah is saying, just like a, an expectant mother, as the time gets closer and closer, with those um, contractions start to get closer and closer, and you know the birth is on the way, and things get more and more desperately painful and crazy and anxious and nervous, and the shouts and pain get more intense. He's saying the same thing's happening with the people and here, here's why i laugh because i kind of remember what's happening next verse 18 we've been with child we've been in pain we have as it were brought forth wind we've not accomplished any deliverance in the earth nor have the inhabitants of the world fallen so that part to me is funny because he's saying brought forth wind that's the old school way of saying farts that's what my folks used to call Breaking wind is called farting. I don't know if people still even say that anymore. Things are so much more vulgar now, I guess would be the word, that those niceties and euphemisms have fallen to the wayside. I think the previous president played a big part in that. 
cussing foul mouth tweets cussing in public of the s-hole countries for instance and then has um, black MAGA members that cheer him on just sick really sick um but it's an example of it of the changing society people don't say break and win anymore i haven't heard that expression since i was a kid um but here that's what they're talking about that's what isaiah is saying he's saying the same way a woman can be pregnant and ready to give birth and those pains get worse as it's happening he's saying the people the the, the nation the people have um i've been in pains and it's getting worse and worse and it's uh the distress is getting more and more terrible and they can tell the there's a climax on the way something big is happening but instead of bringing forth new life and making all that pain somewhat worth it and all they're doing is partying or <laughs> through all that pain and suffering and hurt and all they have to show for it is some funky air some smell in the air some gas that's all they're doing is blowing hot air out the other end verse 19 your dead shall live together they shall rise they shall arise awaken seeing you who dwell in dust for your dew is like the dew of herbs and the earth shall cast out the dead so now isaiah is saying that the dead will rise so maybe what he was talking about earlier about they shall die and not rise maybe he was actually referring to the idols that people um, were lifting up and praying to and seeking rather than God, rather than the people. Because clearly here he's saying his dead body shall rise and he's saying theirs will too. And they'll awake to singing, to praise and to song, not to misery and burning like in Luke 16 as one of the rich man woke to. And the earth shall cast out the dead. So I think that that means surely there's a resurrection and Isaiah believes in it. Uh, verse 20. Come, my people, enter your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is passed. So as you can tell from the headline, it says, take refuge from the coming judgment. So it seems Isaiah's um, prophecy is turning here to another topic, to another subject, or at least to another era, where uh, the people are being encouraged to um, seek safety, seek refuge, and uh, be careful, um, because there's dangerous times, and, then they, and that's what the indignation means. And I think it's talking about when they're conquered and uh, taken captive and carried away from their homelands and their homes, their beautiful, fancy houses, taken away from them and um, poor people, other people, foreigners are living in them. Verse 21, for behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. So Isaiah seems to be talking about a sort of judgment day where um, God will uh, judge the inequities that exist among humanity and punish humanity for it. And that also the earth will take part in it in revealing all the bloodshed, all the murder, all the oppression, all the killing. The earth is gonna testify. And I think that goes along with what Jesus says about the one thing that God doesn't know. He tells us in a parable about um, 
about the 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 growing seed that uh, the 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 sower plants good seeds. I'm paraphrasing my memory. Sower plants good seeds, and then the night an enemy sows tares, and then the servants of the um, the the of the owner say, "Well, do you want us to gather up the tares?" Um, since you know those are basically weeds, you can't harvest and eat them like you can the wheat. And um, he tells them, "No, don't do that because you might damage the wheat. Instead, wait till the time of harvest, and then that's when you separate the wheat from the tares and burn up the tares." I think that's um, in, oh, the part I missed about the earth, the part the earth plays in it. Jesus tells us that um, the earth yields crops by itself. He himself does not know how. Um, and I think that's in Luke where he tells us that. And I think that's what he's saying here. The earth, the world, which is what God actually loves. It's not the people that God loves. Remember, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God loves the world that much that he let Jesus, his own son, come to the earth in the flesh do all sorts of wonderful things and be witnessed doing all sorts of miracles, raising people from the dead, healing people, giving people vision, teaching people the scriptures, all sorts of things, giving us the red letters and still being rejected, betrayed by his friends, deserted by his disciples, and then denied even by one of the disciples and betrayed by one of the disciples to be arrested and killed. He went through all that because God loves the world, not because God loves the people. God loves the world that much that he let Jesus go through all that suffering to keep the world going. And I think it's because the world is just that dynamic and fabulous in God's eyes. And I guess it is. Look how it turns out people. It makes people do the experience of living in the world makes people do all sorts of wonderful things like helping each other, uh, uh, donating uh, organs to each other, donating, donating money to each other, donating time and energy, even laying down your life for each other. But it also, the experience of the world lends to all sorts of horrible things in people. The greed, the wickedness, the oppression, the slavery, the abuse, the killing, the murders, the wars, all of that stuff is also a product, I think, of the human experience of living in the world and apparently God really loves the world that much um, enough so to even give Jesus and Jesus probably was even willing to do it knowing that all of that stuff was just for that moment and that ultimately he'd rise again that that wasn't going to be the end and he knows that there's life after death and that he'd rise again and that even though all of those things are going to happen he still knew there was a place for him him on high so he was still willing to do it i say all that to say that verse 21 seems to be saying that in that sort of judgment moment of judgment the earth is going to tell on all the people who've done all the wickedness on it as if god doesn't already see it know it noticed it and repaid people for it it seems to me that's what isaiah is saying is going to be that sort of judgment day coming and at all the Evil will be uncovered and exposed. That's the last verse in this chapter. So that's where we'll end this part of the reading. And we'll go on to our passage of the day. And that is from, let's see, is it red letter? 
it's actually sort of a hybrid. It is red letter because Jesus uses it, says it, and quote, and it's a quote of Jesus, but it's also um, an Old Testament reference. It's something Jesus says as a quote, a reference to the Old Testament, but he says it in his ministry. So it makes it red letters. Jesus basically basically affirms it. So it's Matthew 23, 39. It's Matthew, the New Testament, chapter 23, verse 39. Um, and there are also, um, uh, well, let's just read it first and then I'll mention the other things. So Matthew 23, 39. It is, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So, um, what, um, why this verse is a, this passage is, um, I guess it is a verse, why it stands out to me or it's a, one of my daily meditations is, let's take it bit by bit. Jesus is letting the crowd know, the people know, letting us know also, but in this moment, letting the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the Israelites there in his presence know that they aren't going to see him again, um, until that uh, sort of second coming moment. And to me, that's, that's significant because that applies in the case of what Saul said. He claims he saw Jesus in the desert, even though he never met Jesus during his ministry. So how would he know that that's Jesus who even saw? And then gave him a whole other different message separate from Christianity that doesn't actually have any quotes so far from our other daily readings, at least any quotes of Jesus in them. Um, that he's using. So to me, that's more proof that that's not, um, that's a different religion. Whether you want to believe it's true or not, it's clearly a different religion. It's in the Bible, so that makes it scripture. And it it says it goes under the umbrella of Christianity. But if it's not red letters, is it actually Christianity? I'd say, no, it's not. So the last part of it is, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's from Psalm 118, verse 26. But it's also in other places. It's Matthew 23, 39, Mark 11, verse 9, Luke 13, 35, and Psalm 118, 26. They all mention, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's um, Jesus making it clear in those four different places, making it clear, uh, but referring to Jesus and the coming. Clearly not the first coming because he's there now and being rejected. But clearly, he's talking about his second coming and that they aren't going to see him again until he comes again that second time. And it's been almost 2,000 years. Who can blame them for taking so long and delaying and not rushing back? Look how they treated him. That's um passage of the day. And that's the reading for today. That's the Naked Truth for today. Thank you for reading along with me. Hope it's a blessing for you and that you'll join me again. I love you. I'll see you next time. Peace be with you.